Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills, the technical skills, soft skills, leadership skills, and personal understanding that marketers of today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. We're here to ensure that marketers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello, and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. Welcome to the Whole Marketer Podcast. Today's podcast is a technical skill. It's marketing effectiveness. And shortly we'll be joined by our guest, the incredible Dr. Grace Kite. But before we are, let me tell you why I believe this to be so important. In this episode, we'll look at the vital skill marketeers of today and tomorrow need in order to be able to set, measure and communicate effectiveness of our activities. I believe this to be a key part of marketers' roles today to ensure that we are standing in our power and leading the long-term commercial agenda. This means we need to take the reins of measuring effectiveness, the return on our marketing investment to demonstrate the value of our profession. We also need to be able to set the metrics that matter or the KPIs at strategic, tactical and campaign level and evaluate and demonstrate our effectiveness for these in the wider organisation. Demonstrating the effectiveness in the wider organisation is no mean feat, and we'll discuss that further in today's podcast. Today's guest is no other than Dr. Grace Kite, founder of Magic Numbers and Magic Works. Grace is a business economist who's worked on hundreds of MMM projects, learning about how to get growth in different categories and coaching marketing people on how to put numbers to good use and tell stories that enable change. In 2010, Grace founded Magic Numbers, which does analytics and econometrics in a way that's human and down to earth, but always bang on and bang up to date. Grace is a columnist at Marketing Week and WAC and a regular speaker on marketing effectiveness. She has a PhD in economics, 14 IPA Effectiveness Award winners, including the Grand Prix in 2022, and was the chair of technical judges in 2020 and 2022. Grace, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. So as always, we start with a big juicy question. And today's big juicy question is, what is marketing effectiveness to you? Really good one. And a favourite question of mine. My first answer would be that it's about selling more stuff. And in doing so, it's about growing businesses, creating livelihoods and, and helping the economy to grow too. And for me, it's also about doing it in a way that isn't wasteful, that makes absolutely the most of every pound in the marketing budget. And there's another part to it as well, which people don't always think about. For me, it's about making life for businesses less risky. That's something that doesn't always get talked about enough in marketing. So in my first job after university, it was in insurance. And so I thought about risk a lot. And I think it's a really underappreciated aspect of what good marketing does for businesses because it insulates you when times are uncertain, whether it's a pandemic or a weak economy or something that's more personal to you, like your costs going up and you need to put your price up. There are other ways of growing businesses, but marketing, only marketing really, if it's effective, delivers growth with with lower risk as well. And that's only if you've been doing good, effective marketing over years. So those are some of the things that are really important to me in effective marketing. And also really important to me because as we were talking offline, you know, marketing should be leading the commercial agenda. To lead the commercial agenda, as you said, we need to sell more stuff. We need to be able to deliver that commercial number, but also demonstrate to the business that we are investing effectively for every pound, euro, dollar that we spent, what we're getting in return and reducing the risk of that investment for us and future marketers that are going to go ahead and bring things to market, building that confidence as we go. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And I agree with that. I mean, I've witnessed that many times, the power of a senior marketer or CMO that's like acing it because they've proved what they're doing works and the board is really listening. Like that marketer's in their power because they can prove it's effective. That's so important. So marketers standing in their power, what skills do you believe they need to have to really be able to embrace the power of marketing effectiveness? There's a really interesting moment right now, and I think marketing effectiveness and having skills around it is more important now than ever. There's just this whole generation of marketers that have grown up believing that marketing is a simple machine. And I can give you an example of a CMO that I know, and I won't be able to give you his name because he's sworn me to secrecy. (laughs) (laughs) But he said he went to one of the founders of his business and was talking about brand building. And the founder said, yeah, no, I'm not doing what you want to do. I don't want to be a household name and be famous. I just want to put a pound in and get 50 pounds back. And, you know, you can't blame him, can you? Wouldn't we all want to do that? And he has data and models and analysis, effectiveness analysis that tells him it's possible because it's all there in the Google dashboards. And that data of those dashboards look like it's the God's honest truth, like there's no sign of any risk in it. And so he's grown up in an era where he's been able to look at all of that and has this belief that it really is such a simple machine, put money in, get money back. If it was that, we'd all just be sitting there all day, just putting money in, getting money back. But actually that school of thought comes from effectiveness analysis. That's really fundamentally flawed. What's in the dashboard of the platforms is an analysis that only includes paid search advertising and sales. So it can't possibly find that anything other than that sales are caused by paid search advertising. So just to take a silly example you know if you sell umbrellas on a rainy day this is a set of analysis and a set of data that can only find that the search ad did it it can't say that the rain mattered so you know the model that a lot of marketers have grown up with is kind of weak and that analysis is wrong the finding is really misleading because it ignores the fact that that simple machine can only work if there's already demand And performance marketing typically isn't capable of creating demand because people just don't spend that much time with the ads and the experience isn't that rich. You know, potential customer doesn't hear any sound or see anything move. So I'm just a bit of text that you're either going to click on now or immediately forget. And so the simple machine relies on a much more complicated set of processes to feed it. And people often don't realize that. So there's a big education job that needs to happen for a lot of marketing people. And some of them are now really senior, but they need to learn the types of marketing that can build demand. And in doing so, feed the simple machine and start to insulate businesses from risk. And that means getting over a misunderstanding. And it's a misunderstanding that a lot of people have got. And that can be really hard to overcome, both in terms of individual people's own beliefs and also the organizational and career structures that have appeared around this misunderstanding. So people have goals, they make reports to bosses, and all of that's been built around this idea that there's this simple machine. And actually, it's not that simple. And people have started to see that, for example, when COVID happened and in some industries, demand just disappeared overnight because you couldn't get to the shops, say. And that's undermined this simple machine working. And there's just a lot to learn around that. And I think that's where the skills really need to be improved across the whole of marketing. It feels to me almost like the digital dashboard has started something Because I was thinking back historically before digital, (laughs) when we were very much focused on sales uplift. So what was happening base rate sales before we did the activation? What was happening to base rate sales after we did the activation? And we'd measure the uplift during and the uplift post, you know, pre and post. And 
then digital came into the fold and then we were thinking, okay, so of that activity, how much of that has attributed to the sales? But actually what you're describing in is an age of marketeer that have grown up with these digital dashboards where they can look at the investment that they're putting out there. And actually that is great that they've understanding that there is an ability to review and control and assess and adjust, but not really how they can educate themselves and others on the wider demand that needs to be generated across the board, across different channels to grow. Yeah, I think so. And do you know, I think the the problem is just, wouldn't it be nice if it was that simple? Mm. And if it was, our jobs would be easy and, you know, we could just do the things that seem to be the right thing in the in the dashboards and the dashboards are really good at pointing that out to you. And that's just an easier thing cognitively for people and organisations to work with than, oh, there's this mass of people out there and we need to kind of change their minds so that in the future they might consider us or might be familiar with us. It's a little bit more amorphous and a bit harder to get your teeth into. And I think cognitively for people and the way that organisations work, it's difficult to actually handle the bigger task. But the bigger task is where you really win in marketing. And what do you see as the bigger task? I think that's about making yourself into a business that's familiar, that's well-known, that will come to mind when people are in the zone to buy from the particular category. And you know, people call that brand building. I find brand building a bit of an unsatisfactory term. Mm, like a catch-all. Yeah, exactly. And people use that word brand to mean so many different things. And so for me, it's just tricky. I prefer demand building or even awareness building. But I think if you're out there getting to a point where you have one or two th- key things that your brand stands for and you're getting those into people's minds in a way that makes them feel positive about you that's where you have that lower risk in the future and that's where your performance marketing's got a strong basis to work with where you're feeding the simple machine really well and you can do that by reaching anybody who could be potentially in the category they don't have to be in the category right now and that for me is the bigger task that's where the bigger wins are but it is a harder task And it sounds to me, as you're describing, it feels very similar to kind of the Byron Sharp principles of going after everyone, being distinctive, you know, remaining relevancy, top of mind to really build those memory structures. Is that correct? Yeah, I think he's right about the Byron Sharp thing is right about a lot of things, particularly if you're in a mature category, his way of thinking is completely right. It is a bit different if you're a younger brand or if you're in a younger Mm. category, targeting the right people will get you as much growth as you need if you're smaller. And if you're in a younger category, it is more about making the case of why this product is worth having. And that's quite different to washing powder or something where everybody knows why it's worth having, you know, so there's a different, there's a more of an informative job to do. But yeah, those are all the bigger tasks. And once you get all of that straight, your performance marketing works really, really well. But if you don't have all of that straight, performance marketing can only do so much. And that's the the misunderstanding that, that some people have. And it's interesting what you say about smaller categories, because often people say to me, oh, so, you know, there's Byron Sharp or there's classic strategic choices, segmentation, targeting, positioning, you know, which one do you go after? And I always say, well, it really does depend on where you are in that stages of entering that market and development, because one size doesn't fit all. And I often think that it's great to have clarity when you enter into a category about who you want to go after. But actually, can you be that selective? Would you be better off 
adopting the Byron Sharp principle then and actually going broad to see who you catch, if you will, and then think about refinement later. But, you know, one size doesn't fit all. I think as I'm listening to you, it's really getting clear on what is it that we need to do to create awareness and be top of mind and distinctive to create the demand? And then what do we do in order to invest so that we can make sure that they take action and purchase us? Yeah. And if you get both of those two things working together, then you're really top of the food chain. That's when you're winning if you've got the two things really working well. But you're right. I mean, the right thing to do is just different depending on different categories. And that's one of the things I love about my job, actually, is that, you know, clients rock up and they give us this puzzle, which is how do we become more effective? And it's always a really, really interesting puzzle. And it's different for every client. And finding the right things is something that I really love in my job as a sort of consultant on effectiveness. It's the thing that's kept me going for all these years and I've never got bored of it, although I am the sort of person that gets bored of things sometimes. And those puzzles that you are looking to solve, is it organisations coming to you saying we want to be more effective, but maybe not measuring the demand and only measuring the performance marketing or is it a combination of the both? You know, where do you start? Do you start with what they have or try and work out what else they should be tracking so you can get a more holistic view? It's really interesting because, again, it's different in different places. Different clients are in different situations. We have a number of clients come to us say, we know we spend too much on search, but how do we move the organisation towards a more balanced plan? But we also do have some that are at the other end of the scale. I would say in UK financial services, there is a lot of focus on brand. And sometimes you need to go in the other direction because you need to be able to activate all that demand that you've produced and you need to be able to capture it and turn it into sales. So there are different clients that have different questions. And one of the things that they have in common, all clients that come to us, is that the success of their effectiveness program is going to depend as much on what they learn by doing analysis with us at Magic Numbers, say, as it depends on their people and their willingness to be able to actually act on the findings that they get. And that's something that is actually, it's a people job. It's not a numbers or an analytics job. It's actually about organisations and willingness and teams working together. And that's something that matters in every single project we do. We did some research on it, actually, because we wanted to understand what makes effectiveness programmes really, really successful. We sat down a whole group of really senior CMOs that had been through it over and over again. And we asked them, what is it that makes an effectiveness programme actually successful? And by successful, I mean that that it revealed some things that needed changing and those things got changed. And then there was results for better growth and performance and revenues and profit and all those lovely good things. And the thing they said over and over again, and they came back to it in so many different ways, and they told us all these different aspects of it. They said it was all about the selling. It was all about making sure that it actually gets used theory into practice and being able to talk persuasively about why it's worth it. So, you know, we discovered that a lot of senior marketers, unbeknownst to each other, are often in the same boat because they undertake analysis and they get recommendations, but then they struggle to implement it. And it's because there's just blockers within the organisation. And sometimes a blocker is a person whose job is diminished by the needed change. So other times it's a suspicious numbers person, quite often in finance. There are a lot of them about. And sometimes there's just a coordination failure where the needed change involves two different departments that don't typically work together. So you you just end up getting to a situation where the findings themselves, kind of the logical next step to do, 
and the proof of it isn't enough. You also need to do a people job around it. That's really fascinating because I work with a lot of marketers helping them build their long-term strategy. And obviously as part of that, setting their KPIs on a strategic tactical and campaign level. And I've seen the acknowledgement from those marketers that they need to set that and an acknowledgement that they have some of those data sources to track it. But if you go back after a period of time, have they commissioned those new data sources to be able to measure all the things that they need to measure? And to your point, are they measuring that frequently enough? Have they set up the forums to discuss those? Are they able to make those changes? So it's quite interesting to hear almost that tag team baton exchange of even someone like yourself that's reviewing all the work that's happening, how effective, you know, changes that should be made. Even with the data, there's still that pushback culturally into making those changes come to life. Yeah, so like this is the sort of thing that gets said. If the model's telling people that what they've done is great, then they go, yes, I'm a hero. Everything's brilliant. Mm. I don't need to change anything. But if it's the other way around, what happens is that suddenly there's a whole set of reasons why people won't change things. So if this model makes you look bad, you go, hang on, I don't believe the model. I don't understand it. And then maybe you pull out a piece of data that you've got that says something different and makes you look better and go, well, how comes this piece of data and this piece of data seem to say different things? How do we know which one's right? And that is where paralysis gets set in. Like that's where just effectiveness programs stop. And it's such a shame because quite often by that time, the research provider might have delivered their PowerPoint and be long gone. So there's no one at hand to resolve the contradiction between these different sources of research. So we did these interviews and we heard all these stories of these kinds of things happening. So one thing that we do at Magic Numbers with our effectiveness programs is make sure that we debrief differently to different people in different ways. And we do up to kind of 20 different discussions about what the research findings are and resolve these contradictions for people and come back to them and say, well, actually, I can see why this piece of data says A, but it's because it's not looking at this other thing. But once you've got everything on the table, the overall picture is B and people can understand that and get on board. But this whole process of dealing with the objections from people who lose out, it's actually really important. And that's what gets people around the table and gets action. Really fascinating. That has really made me think, and I'm sure many other listeners listening, that actually even with that data, even with the findings and what we need to do, different people may need different decks, if you will, different messages, different conversations to really face into those changes that need to happen. And it makes me think of a book that I read recently, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And in that, it talks about change cultures and it talks about the reluctance of change in successful people. So actually, the more senior someone is and if they've had success on that journey, the less reluctant they will be to make changes to do something different because it takes away from what they've done so far that's worked to then feel safe enough to change it and do something differently to get them to another place. Mm. So I feel like there's quite a lot of psychological drivers and as you said, certainty, you know, changes in role, will this impact my role or my function or my responsibility, really getting in the way of making changes to be more effective. Is that something that you see also? Yeah, I think so. And it's true. I think it's partly about individual marketers and I get what you're saying about the senior people have got here because I've done it this way. I think it is also about how different people within businesses work together as well. And it's, Agree. That's the bit that, you know, decision making in big businesses, particularly about something big like 
buying an advertising campaign, say a, a brand building campaign, the decision making process for that, Gartner have this flow chart. It's so cool. I, I should send it to you afterwards. But it, they set out and did some research into how businesses make decisions like this. And they thought it was this sort of four step process where the problem would be identified and then different providers would come in with a problem solution and then the committee would get together and choose from them and then they'd choose one and off you go. Yeah. But when they actually mapped out the process, there were all these different steps where actually different committees would have to decide on different parts of it. And they found that there were so many feedbacks where something could happen that could move you back in that flow Mm. that there could just be a huge number of breaks in it. And so actually businesses making decisions like that for good reasons, because they don't want to get it wrong. The decision making can be really quite tortuous, can be really quite complicated. And actually getting to conclusion to actually do something big like that is very difficult. And people don't find it easy. I can't remember the exact stat, but it was the vast majority of the people they interviewed said it's really difficult to make decisions like this, really difficult just to get to a conclusion on it. There's good reasons for that, but also there is inertia to get over in terms of these kinds of things. So it almost feels like there's multifacets that are standing in the way of making that change from presenting to different functions, thinking about the inertia that stops us from moving forward, maybe the processes, the people, the barriers. You know, it's quite complicated, actually, to be able to make change. And I imagine even more so in much larger organisations as well. But I think it is doable. And I don't want it to sound like actually improving your marketing effectiveness is such a hard thing to do that you're never going to do it because businesses do do it. And I've seen it loads of times where this stuff is just so powerful But it just does take more than a kind of expert that goes, I've got this technical whizzy tool that's going to solve it for you. And it is doable. It just takes slightly different things. It takes slightly different things for different organisations, for different individuals and different humans involved. But the most important thing, everyone that's listening, keep going. (laughs) absolutely Absolutely. because if we don't change the dial on effectiveness we can't own the long-term commercial agenda and if we can't own the long-term commercial agenda marketeers can't stand in their power right i'm off my soapbox now that's it yeah (laughs) off my soapbox so we've talked about you know setting that demand as well as the action at marketing activities, making sure they're effective, making sure that we can communicate the changes that need to happen and, you know, persisting through those changes in your organisation, depending on the infrastructure that's there, the culture and so on, and the people involved. For marketers that sat here listening, okay, great. So what do I need to be tracking? What are those long-term demand and short-term action measures, if you will? Where should I start? So in terms of metrics that people should use for long and short term and communicating them, I think this can be a bit tricky because I'd like to be able to go to you, like use this metric, use this metric, use this metric, use awareness and consideration because they do track important things. Use something like share of brand search or click through rate on your performance marketing to see what's happening in the online space. But it's very difficult to say use this specific metric because the right ones to use are different for different businesses. But what you want to find, at least what we advise our clients to try to find, are metrics that fulfill two criteria. The first one is that they move when you do good marketing. So you know that when you've done good marketing in the past, these metrics move. And that gives you a reason to think that 
if you do marketing again and this metric moves, then it's probably good marketing. That's criteria number one. Criteria number two is that when they do move these metrics, you get better business outcomes. So sales now and with less risk, sales into the longer term future. So if you've got metrics that tick off both of those things, they move with good marketing and they're correlated with better business outcomes, then those are the types of metrics that you want. And we've looked at this, we've got a little product that does it called Metrics That Matter, where you do a bit of econometric modeling to find the right metrics. And what we found is that most businesses have one or two that are like this. Not a huge number of them, but just one or two, maybe three. What we suggest is that you find them and then you stick to those one or two and you don't let yourself be distracted by most other things. And then you double down on using them. You know, you find out exactly um, what they're doing and how they're changing and you organise the organisation around them and just say these are the things that we're trying to target. Not just this year, but, you know, forever. We would just say it's probably unlikely to be ROAS or CPA from your digital dashboards because those are the ones from the simple machine I was talking about. But that's quite a difficult thing because many organisations are set up around those ones and have been making decisions on the basis of those ones. They're from that simple machine I was talking about. They claim credit for everything that has built demand. They say it was the high-tech fishing net that mattered, not the pool of fish. And actually, that's a mistake that's quite hard to reverse. We quite often meet online-first organisations who can't stop doing brand PPC, even when they're always at the top of the organic listings. And you're like, why? Stop doing it. And it turned, <laughs> just turns out, though, that the board board is used to seeing a low CPA number or a high ROAS number, and they don't have the time to learn why it's not right. So there's a whole process which is about learning, find the right metrics that fulfill the two criteria and take people on the journey as to why it's these ones and not the ones that you might have been looking at so far. And that is tricky. And that is really tricky. And I think what's really tricky, as you say, is communicating why they're important. Have you got any advice for the listeners on how to communicate which ones are important and why? I think it is really about the people themselves. So understanding what sort of ways of communication suit them. So some people, a case study is the best way to get to explain to them because lots of people like stories. Stories work for all kinds of learning types. Visual learners picture the actors in the story in their minds. And verbal learners listen to the storyteller's words. So a story about another business that's done this this way and seen great success is fantastic for some people. But there are other people who will want to be much more analytical about it. And you quite often find these people in finance and they say things like, okay, I'm okay with trying it, but I want to try it and see that it works. And then I want a break point. And what's the evidence you're going to show me so that I'll know that it's working in three months time. Mm. And so they need an analytical type of approach to, to getting them on board, but different people need different things. So it really comes back down to really thinking about the human that you're trying to get on board and think about their learning style and reflecting your story to be in a way that they can absorb and understand. I think so. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's also just a a role for training in all of this. I mean, we're in a situation right now where training is an absolute no brainer in marketing. Since COVID, there's been a range of fantastic online courses become available. And I think whoever you are in a business, having training is going to really improve your career progress. It's going to make your clients do better in the marketplace and it's going to make your careers flourish. And the reason why is because actually 
only a very small proportion of marketing people have formal training. So in the UK, I saw a stat recently, it's only 24% of marketers have formal training. And 66%, if you ask them, agree that not having training is a major blocker to progress. We're not weird in that way. The UK is 24%. In the US, it's only 27%. And in Australia, it's better but only 32% there. So marketing as a, an industry is, is not very well trained. And what that means is that marketers that take training are going to have a competitive advantage. They're just going to do better than their peers that are, are not trained. And I think that actually, if you want to take someone on a journey as to why that ROAS that they've always been looking at or that CPA that they've always been looking at isn't maybe the metric that we're going to nail to the flag for the whole organisation for the next five years. There's a role for training right there. Take them away from the workplace. Don't make it just my boss is telling me this. Make it somebody who's well-respected and amongst a cohort of other marketing people. We're learning this and we're understanding why. As a trainer myself, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) (laughs) You did training for the CIM. Yeah, I still do training for the CIM. I've been training for actually 17 years now. Fantastic. Across multiple organisations, industries, sectors, brands, businesses. Absolutely love it. Well, I'll be interested in your in your 2P on it then, because I've recently launched courses of my own. Yeah. And in the run up to doing that, we did some market research and we did lots of interviews with people. And what they said, we asked kind of, what's your personal blocker? that prevents you being more effective. And what was really interesting, they said, they seem to say over and over again that the problem wasn't knowing the theory. They get the theory from Les Binet and Peter Field, Nirenberg Bass, and they, they can read about it on you know, LinkedIn or in Walk or Marketing Week or wherever. But what they said their real blockers were, were changing that theory into practice So being able to bring the theory back to the business and and put it into practice. And then also being able to talk persuasively about why putting this theory into practice was worth it. Those were the two things that came out of our research. For me, training that works really, really well is when it's embedded within an organisation, practical hands-on. So you're actually doing, for example, if you're training, one of the topics I train is long-term strategy. So if you're training long-term strategy, looking at what their existing strategic process is, maybe refining it, you're training against it, you're allowing them to actually do it in practice. And then the latter, one of the courses that I do also includes how to sell this into the business. So we look at different methodologies. So just as you've described, we look at the different learning styles. We look at the think, feel, do, before and after. Where is the organisation? Where do they need to be? Where is that person? Where do you want to get them to? I teach methodology like square methodology, but how to write that pivotal question. So it's really not only how to do it, but also how to sell it into the organisation so that it can be embedded and people want to take and move it forward and come with you on the journey. Because for me, that's, as you've described today, as I always say, it's one thing to write a strategy. It's a whole other thing to make it happen. Absolutely. So, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So even if you've written that strategy, if you haven't got the skills, the belief, the empowerment, the belief within, the confidence to stand there in front of everybody then it's not going to move forward. And that for me is where the whole marketer comes in because it's not just the technical skills, it's also the personal understanding, the soft skills, the leadership skills. So it's one thing to understand if we just talk about effectiveness now, effectiveness, the KPIs, the dashboards, it's a whole other thing, as you've already described, to be able to communicate that effectively for people to understand what that means and therefore to make change on the back of it. And that takes belief, that takes confidence, that takes empowerment, that takes storytelling skills, that takes you know, a whole holistic view of that marketeer to make that change happen. 
I think I, I couldn't agree with that more. And uh, that quite often, particularly bringing it back to training, could be very personalised and very kind of in person in a particular organisation or with a particular marketer to move them on. And one of the challenges that I wanted to tackle with my training was how do you do that, but in a way that's scalable as a business from our point of view, but also for the students, something that doesn't have to be your organisation spending 10 grand or spending a huge amount sending individuals to individually tailored one-to-one courses. And so we fleshed this out in our research as we were working out how to build courses. And what came up was that actually people wanted to be seen as an expert and they wanted to be able to use data to influence decision makers. So what we've put in our courses is loads of frameworks, loads of benchmarks, loads of simple things you can do with data that you've already got. Then tricks and tips that analysts use to reveal strategies, but also to convince organisations to act. And then there's lots of benchmarks and evidence, modern case studies that aren't available anywhere else. And alongside the video training, there's also a homework story where you have an example business and you take them through their real problem and get them all the way through tackling all of these things. And, you know, at the end of it, you've got to kind of write a presentation that convinces the boss to do the thing that you've revealed. Because right at the end of all of our courses, there's a how do you convince people to do it module with tactics and frameworks to use, just like you were saying, to actually move things on. So we have data storytelling in one and we have theories of change in another. And people come out of it saying, I I actually took this back to my business and used it straight away. We had a really high percent of people agree with that in their post-course evaluations that they've just used it straight away and seen results. And that using it straight away is really important. So basically you've got two weeks since the training's finished to start embedding it because you start, it's like use it or lose it. So one of the things I always finish my training sessions with is making sure that everybody leaves with three things that they're going to do differently in that two week window. So they start seeing the benefit of applying the new learnings that they've just acquired to start making that change and moving it forward. That's brilliant. I might steal that. Steal it with pride. (laughs) Thank you. One thing that always fascinates me though is I always speak with the most senior marketeer usually that is now looking at development work streams or training programs for their marketeers and sometimes they can come really clear on we've got a capability gap here and because they have that skill themselves and therefore they've identified it in their marketeers whether they're a new in role or they've changed roles and they want to kind of close that gap but sometimes there's bottom up so individuals will come and say to your point we don't understand effectiveness as well as we want to can I be put on a course and a course will get commissioned but sometimes those senior marketeers don't come to that training And I find that really fascinating because the people that you've just put this training on for are all going to have a vernacular language and understanding together of how to do things differently and how to move things forward that you're not always part of. And that always fascinates me. I know it's difficult to make time, but there is definitely something really powerful about when you are having training. If everyone in the team's having it, you're creating a new moment in time with that language and the new ways of working in, as you've just said, those top tips or the structures, they'll all be using the same structure. They'll all be using the same top tips. And that power in numbers makes change happen more forcefully, I would say. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think you touched on it there, but the language and the vernacular, like how do we talk about this as an organisation is one of the most important things to have out of training. Words and ways to talk about things and, you know, moments where we could refer to that training and everybody in the room would know what we were on about. Shortcuts you then having to kind of explain it and go off in all those things in Gartner's flowchart that could get you right back to the beginning and stop you making that decision. So I think coming out of training with a set of language and a set of words that we all know what they mean is really, really powerful. And yeah, I think if you can get a whole team into the same training course, then you haven't got one person who comes back and goes, I want to do this and everyone else doesn't quite get it. Yeah. And the cross section of seniority levels as well. So if someone's going to be contributing, let's just say to a strategic planning process, someone's going to be contributing, but not leading it. Why not include them also? Because then they're going to become aware of the process, the system that they are contributing to. And later on down the line, when it does become them that leads it, they've already got a head start. And it's the same with effectiveness. You know, even if they haven't got to sell that in or get senior management buy-in, but they are reporting against it, understanding the context and the change drivers and the levers that it can make is going to have great impact as well so really considering the who's in the room also yeah and we see it in our client base if the most senior person in the business is involved in this effectiveness program then it's going to be much more successful so we try to get the most senior person in marketing and sometimes in finance as well into our process right at the very beginning because that's just going to make it much more powerful and I think the same thing is true of the outcomes that can come from training if you have really good people at the top who are in that room, then it just makes everyone go, right, that yes, this really is that much more important. And it, it means that blockers can be lifted later if that person's in the process. And also they're going to be the guardians for what great looks like as you move forward. So if that new work does arrive on their desk, they will be reviewing it on their own previous experience, not based on the training and potentially the better way of things to be done that their team have just Mm -hmm. created and learnt. So it needs to be considered across all of the tiers, in my opinion. Completely agree. Yeah, that's, that's really wise. So Grace, thank you so much for your time so far. We're getting into the final sections of the podcast and I'd love to hear your career highs and lows. So I'm going to start with lows. Also, it's always better to end it with a high, isn't it? So lows, I was thought about this while I was walking my dog this morning and I actually got quite burnt out as a young analyst. I found out much later that it was because the business that I was working in was trying to grow and they'd been selling projects at a low price and people had to work long hours to make it work. And I was really gutted by that because I thought it was a, I was really let down by the people who were running things at, at that time. But at the end of that job, as I was leaving, and I, I did leave in a bit of a huff, the, the people who are there that I worked with are still friends of mine, but I did leave Cross. I had an exit interview with a, a brilliant person from HR and I kind of ranted at her after finding out that it was going to be confidential. I was much younger then, but she said to me, this stuck with me my whole career. She said to me, you'll never let that happen again, will you? And I was like, it was the first time that a penny had dropped, that it was some of these things were in my control and you, you can gently say no to bosses and you can refuse to be overworked and that you need to put those barriers up for yourself. And I think that experience has made me believe as an employer, bosses do need to take care of it, but also there is a really important thing that younger people need when they join, when they start working, is they need to learn that lesson that they need to look after themselves. And and it's something that we at Magic Numbers and, and Magic Works, which is the training arm, try to really teach our young people just give them nice ways to say no to their bosses and tell them you can tell me no if you're too full up. 
So that, I guess, was one of my lows, but it turned out to something that's a really good career lesson that I've kept with me for all these years since. Um, So that was lows. And then I guess on the high side, one of the things that's been a great joy to me over recent years is that I am sat across lots and lots of effectiveness analysis for, for many years. I've been doing it for more than 20 years and I've seen patterns across all these different projects and I find it absolutely fascinating. And the high point is knowing, finding out that the world is actually quite interested in those patterns too. So being able to write articles that and finding out that people read them and people telling me oh that was really interesting and doing talks and things as well and finding out that that actually I find speaking and getting my thoughts out there into the world a bit daunting because I'm actually someone that's quite happy on my own with a spreadsheet but actually finding that these patterns in data that I've found is really interesting to everyone has been lovely it's been real joy actually to be able to share that I love that. And you know that I'm always up for seeing data patterns and marketing effectiveness (laughs) reports. So pass them on over. So you've given us so much advice already today, Grace, on today's podcast, but we always finish the podcast with the following question. What one piece of advice would you give to marketers of tomorrow? I would say never get bored with the next shiny new thing. People are a bit sniffy about, say, the metaverse or AI, and often experts probably older experts will point to kind of focusing on the things that never change that are universal about people that we're trying to communicate to with our marketing and there is some truth in that but innovation is also brilliant and what happens with a range of innovations is that they're overhyped at first but actually they're still what brings progress in the world in the capacity of humankind and in marketing effectiveness so metaverse and ai and blockchain are now in the phase that the internet was in 1998 and look how amazing the internet is now look how much better our marketing is how much our lives are enriched too so at some point Everybody looked at the internet and went, oh, it's just a shiny new thing that won't last. But look at how much improvement we've had out of it in all the years since. So my advice would be never lose that excitement for the next big new thing and always explore the new. That's great advice. And thank you again for your time on today's podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning into the Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. The Whole Marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a Whole Marketer and build Whole Marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.